Hello and welcome to The Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and you're listening to us on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. Restaurants are actually a lot like theater. What we're seeing on the stage, or in this case, on the plate, in fact, the entire presentation from the spiel of the waitstaff to the sparkle of the wine glasses to the entree before us is the final product of a massive operation involving the work of innumerable unseen people, including farmers, meat packers, even delivery drivers, whose work enables those in the kitchen itself. Today, we're talking with the author of a new book that presents the backstory of a single dish from the moment the order is placed to its delivery on the table, pulling back the curtain to reveal not only the cast of characters involved, but the long apprenticeships and the passion necessary to prevail in a trade with exacting standards, nominal compensation, and extreme stress. My guest today is Andrew Friedman, the author of Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll, and the producer-host of the popular podcast, Andrew Talks to Chefs. He's co-authored with over 25... He's co-authored over 25 cookbooks, memoirs, and other projects with America's best-known chefs and teaches at the Culinary Institute of America. Today we're talking about his latest book, The Dish, The Lives and Labor Behind One Plate of Food. Andrew Friedman, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thanks for having me, Ira. I'm thrilled to be here. So let's set the table. You embedded yourself in a Chicago restaurant for a week just after the first wave of COVID let up. Describe the restaurant for us and the ingredients in the dish. Sure. Uh, the restaurant uh, in the book is a restaurant called Wherewithal. They spelled it W-H-E-R-E-W-I-T-H-A-L-L. And uh, it was a uh, a modest scaled, uh, what I think would qualify as a fine dining restaurant by today's standards. Uh, the food was very chef driven, um, and about a 50 seat main dining room plus a bar room. And they served a set menu, also known as a tasting menu, meaning unless you needed a modification, uh, to, to avoid eating meat, if you were a vegetarian or if you had an allergy, um, everyone, uh, who comes in was basically signing on uh, for the same meal, and they changed uh, the menu there weekly. So every week it was a different menu. Uh, the week that I was there, um, and the plan had always been that I would I would write about the last savory course, which would give me the the maximum amount of time. Uh, to to have a dinner service going on because I needed I needed connective tissue to to give me space between the various profiles uh, and the dish that week was a dry aged strip loin of beef uh, with a half partially dehydrated brandywine tomato uh, a red wine reduction with herbs that was the sauce and it was sort of garnished with a few unadorned whole sorrel leaves. Um, very simple dish. And yet, um, you know, amazingly enough, people and backstories involved, even in something that elemental to, to fill a book. So, so to some home cooks, the dish you just described may seem kind of exotic, but you tell us that the chefs 
are actually driven by humility. They do not desire to show off on the plate, but but to do what tastes good, even if the combinations strike us as kind of novel. So how do they come up with these dishes? Sure. Well, in the book, we actually uh, get to witness a, a menu meeting uh, because they did change it weekly. Uh, the ideation for the following week's menu generally would happen after service on Thursday night. Um, and this was late enough that technically it would actually be Friday morning. It would be after midnight. Um, and uh, usually one of the chef owners, there's a couple that own the restaurant who are both chefs, uh, Johnny Clark and Beverly Kim. Uh, and at that restaurant, it was usually actually Johnny who would sit down with the chef de cuisine, and, and that's sort of the, the chef who kind of manages the kitchen day to day. And they would sit down with the ordering sheets for all the farms in the area that they source from. And, you know, they each week they would get lists of what was going to be available from the different farms. And that was their starting point. Their starting point was what, what are we going to be able to get our hands on that's in peak condition for the season? Uh, you know, four or five days from now. And, and that's how they would start uh, brainstorming uh, the various dishes. Uh, you know, the proteins, meaning, you know, the meats and, and fish and shellfish and poultry, uh, those are less season dependent. So very often when you get into the main courses, it, it's actually not the, the the protein that drives the dish. It's very often everything the protein is surrounded by and and uh, uh, complemented by, um, and and you could probably slot any number of proteins into certain dishes and have it work almost just as well. From the owner chefs on down and all through the kitchen staff, most people seem to have at least one thing in common. They came to this work out of passion and continue in it because they were all kind of a different breed. I don't want to call them misfit, misfits, but they didn't fit in other places. This crazy life was the one in which they somehow fit. So, so what kind of a person prevails in this high stress, low pay world of a busy restaurant? Yeah, I mean, this is something that um, you know. Everything I do is either with or about chefs um, professionally, and this is this amazing set of commonalities that. Even now that it's a more respectable profession than it was maybe 30, 40 years ago before we had these people called, quote unquote, celebrity chefs, um, uh, you know, it tends to draw people who uh, in the the way of backstory, uh, people who in some way weren't really compatible with traditional classroom education. You, You tend to hear a lot of people who end up in kitchens say uh, they were very bored uh, sitting in class. Uh, they didn't like to sit still. They, they need to work with their hands. Um, there's a lot of people who were high school athletes, not necessarily top tier, but people um, who found expression through physicality. Uh, I would say that a lot of them also are, are former amateur musicians. Um, you know, very often, and I write about this in the book, uh, you know, the kitchen is planned B or plan C in their life. Um, this is the thing I'm still surprised by constantly that even, you know, with things like a television food network and, and, and things shows like top chef and, and, and streaming shows like chef's table, 
you know, there's, there's still this kind of unsavory thing that attaches to the culinary profession. Uh, and, and families tend not to think it's a great idea, uh, to do that. Uh, but once people find the kitchen, the people who tend to thrive there, uh, they tend to be people who are very good multitaskers. Uh, they tend to be people who are somewhat, uh, physically, uh, dexterous. Uh, they tend to be people who thrive under pressure, who who do their best work under pressure, which is what, uh, you know, uh, in a perfect world, every night of the week would be in a restaurant. But certainly, you know, Friday and Saturday night, which are the big nights, uh, uh, you know, those are where you really get tested. Um, and people who are able to function as part of an organism. Uh, you know, I'm always interested uh, to find out if, if, if someone who's a chef or a cook played high school sports, if they were team sports or individual sports. Um, I think individual sports often correlate with people who tend to have really good dis ideas, you know, people who tend to be very expressive. Uh, and I'm not saying that people who favor team sports can't do that, but the thing uh, with team sports, just as being in a, a, ba- a high school band, uh, the, the kind of communication, the kind of nonverbal sometimes communication uh, the kind of orchestration of a, a group of people towards a common goal, uh, that all of that applies to kitchens, right? So um, this is why I think we see so many former athletes and musicians who end up uh, in the professional kitchen. But that, that's a long answer, but that's, <laughs> I think that's, uh, uh, that's the gist of it. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about all the people, all the labor, and all the passion behind one entree served in a modern restaurant. My guest is prolific chef writer, I would call him a chef whisperer, podcast host and professor at the Culinary Institute of America, Andrew Friedman. His latest book is The Dish, The Lives and Labor behind one plate of food. So I have to get to some of the people out of the kitchen because that is one of my favorite parts of the book. And one of the most fascinating characters in the book was the meat purveyor, a guy named Louis John Slagle, who, this is this amazed me. He was the fourth oldest child in an old farm family and created what reads like a meat-selling empire through a lot of chutzpah and a keen eye to the changes in the restaurant business. Tell us about Louis John Slagle. Uh, yeah, so um, uh, I'm going to call him Louis John, although... Uh, oh, Louis John, okay. At, well, yeah, although I will say the people who work uh, like in the butcher shop that they have uh, call him Louis, but... Um, uh, I was told to call him Lewis John when he introduced himself. Uh, but he, uh, fascinating guy. Uh, uh, he's based in Forest, Illinois, which is a town uh, population of approximately a thousand people. It's about two hours due south of Chicago. Um, and he is, I believe, fifth generation of a family that has been raising cattle and, and selling meat. Uh, you know, going back uh, over a hundred years and uh, they had always just been, uh, you know, a farm that just sold its meat to larger companies. Um, and, and Louis John would never spend time in the city of Chicago, uh, even though it was only two hours away, uh, had this epiphany uh, when, when he kind of took over the reins of the business that they should be selling to 
Chicago restaurants. He just felt instinctually that their product was good enough that they could play on that field. And, you know, you fast forward less than 20 years and Slagle meat, you mentioned Slagle, not just to any restaurant tour in Chicago, but a lot of just people who dine out a fair amount, people know that company. That is a name that is very well known. It is served in a lot of the best restaurants in Chicago. Uh, they have a very wide uh, selection of um, meat products, including poultry. Um, and it all comes uh, from uh, a little collection of farms that kind of dot the area around Forest, Illinois, uh, that are that are owned by various members of the family, often on the same property as their homes, um, and and they raise cattle there, they raise poultry there, um, and then the the processing facility is right at the end of uh, basically Main Street. Uh, it's called Crack Street, K R A C K, um, and and they have a pretty decent sized processing facility there, and. Uh, you know, uh, poultry goes out pretty fresh, uh, meat, they age, uh, various cuts to, ver- to various lengths. Um, they, they try to be nimble enough to accommodate last minute orders if they need to for and, certain, you know, for restaurant clients. And he started this um, whole thing by making cold calls to, to restaurants. Yes. Uh, right. So what he did was he, when he had this idea, again, did not know his way around Chicago, got into his car, went to Chicago, and he had gone through, um, you know, different magazines and whatnot that had capsule reviews of restaurants in the back. And any restaurant that you had a word like organic or free range or anything like this, he highlighted it. And and those are the restaurants uh, that he went around to to drop off samples. I mean, he was very confident in the product and and rightfully so. And right off the bat, uh, anyone who's knows the Chicago dining scene will know this name, but he connected with a chef named Paul Kahan, who's one of the more prolific and successful uh, chefs in the city of Chicago. And Paul was getting ready to open a restaurant called The Publican, which in the book I refer to as the meat orgy restaurant, The Publican. It's a very meat-centric restaurant, and he could not have been happier you know, to meet Louis John, this new purveyor in his life. And, you know, they've been I actually went to one of Paul's restaurants after an event in Chicago a few weeks ago. Um, and I asked our server, I was eating a short rib dish. And I said, is this from Slagle? And he said, uh, he said, I'm not sure, but it's a pretty safe bet that it is because uh, Paul buys a lot of this stuff from there. And, you know, this is uh, 16 years later, <laughs> you know, uh, and the guy is really I mean, he's taken over the town. His, I should say. You know, you meet him, and this town is so small. Um, but I mean, he's you know he's kind of a little mogul there. I mean, he's he has really um, taken off and has, to my mind, just incredible instincts. Um, you know, for dealing with chefs uh, uh, and and just for being um, you know responsive for 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 fulfilling orders the way he says he's going to. I mean, these are all things that sound. Very basic, but you know, uh, you 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 made a comparison to uh, theater uh, in the introduction. Uh, you know, restaurants are a show must go on business, and if your meat delivery doesn't show up, or if you get shorted, i.e., you know, you don't get as much of something as you had planned on, you know, that's a real wrench in the gears. You know, you you have to 
adjust on the fly. You may have to change a dish or sub out a dish, uh, you know, that you're going to be serving that night. Uh, the staff needs to get brought up to speed on that. There's this whole chain reaction that happens. So, you know, just being dependable is a huge part of the loyalty uh, that he's managed to receive at this point in his career. So our vegetarian listeners may not appreciate this, but I couldn't live with myself if I didn't ask about the origins of a Lewis John dish called wood wood oven roasted pig face and how and how wood oven roasted pig face came about. Can you tell us the story? Yeah, of course. Uh, uh, Stephanie Izzard, who was the chef and partner with the Boca Restaurant Group in a number of restaurants, the first was called Girl and the Goat, and and all the restaurants have goat in the name. Uh, but they were getting ready to open that first restaurant, and Stephanie rang up Louis John and said, "What what do you need to get rid of?" And that is a dream question. <laughs> For anybody on the agricultural farming cattle side of things. Uh, and uh, Lewis John's answer was, you know, I, I feel like we have a lot of good yield uh, from from pig heads uh, that's not being used. Um, now, I don't know what that sounds like to people, but, you know, there, there are a lot of it sounds much prettier when you say technical shown. You know, there there are a lot of. Uh, classic French preparations that make use of a pig head. Uh, and, and you know, when it's been, uh, the meat's been chopped up and, re, you know, and, and uh, found its way into a finished dish or into some kind of a, a terrine or or whatnot, um, you know, it just tastes like pork. Uh, you, 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 you wouldn't know where it came from, uh, except for the name. But she uh, devised a dish called Wood Oven Roasted pig face and it's i mean it is just what it sounds like they, they would take uh the, the 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 pig face uh season it roll it if anyone listening knows what a porchetta, a porchetta is an italian food kind of like that roll it up season it tie it and roast it and um i've not had that dish i i actually should probably go in there and eat it next time i'm in chicago as i'm talking about it i don't know why i haven't had it but that has become from day one, uh, one of the defining signature dishes of Girl and the Goat restaurant. And, you know, as Lewis John points out in the book, it, it all came about when Stephanie called him and said, you know, what do you need to what do you need to unload? Um, it's also a smart question from the restaurateur because you're probably going to get a good price on something like that. You know, something that's just been discarded for years. Uh, you know, that's real found money uh, for a farm. And uh, he was delighted to have that become, you know, a, a new item on the inventory list, even if there was only one restaurant that was buying it. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today, we're going behind the scenes of the creation of a single dish at a fine dining restaurant. My guest is chef writer, podcast host, and professor at the Culinary Institute of America, Andrew Friedman. His latest book is The Dish, The Lives and Labor Behind One plate of food. So so another of my favorites um, in the book, another of my favorites was you talked about deliveries and I kept being surprised by how deeply you infiltrated the restaurant's workforce. And one of my heroes is the his, a guy that I would call a road warrior, Mark Hoffmeister, who navigates 
the traffic and back alleys of downtown Chicago in a large truck delivering crates of fresh vegetables. He seems to have nerves of steel, and I get it for anybody who navigates a big city in a big truck and knows there's no place to park and a lot of impatient cops on the corner. So were you equally impressed when you went on, on the route with Mark Hoffmeister? Uh not a, it's my favorite section in the book personally is is the odyssey that i experienced with him uh i am in awe of this guy um i uh i remember vividly uh when i left him coming back to the apartment of the friends i was staying with and saying i just i just experienced what's going to be like the most entertaining thing in the book he uh First of all, I, I met him uh, about 50 minutes northwest of the city in Marengo, Illinois, at the packing facility, when he starts his day. And that was 2.30 in the morning. Um, he he has a route of restaurants. Many of them he goes to every time he uh, does a delivery run. But, you know, the day I was with him, there was one new client. Um, he does his entire job. And this is unusual, even in his profession. Uh, he doesn't use a routing app. In other words, an app where you put all the, your destinations and it kind of sorts them in the most logical uh, fashion. Um, and he doesn't use any electronics to to check his inventory. I'm, he functions the way someone would have done this job, uh, except for the fact that he has a cell phone if he needs to call the farm or something. Um he does this job basically, basically the way someone would have done it 50 years ago. You know, he has a stack of invoices and there's a bunch of boxes uh, outside uh, on the loading dock where his truck is. And he checks them against each other and he puts them in the back. He puts them in the truck and he just starts driving. And he's a native of Chicago. He knows his way around. But what I never understood about that, that job, because I don't really ever seen these people come into a restaurant, you know, wheeling a hand truck uh, is, as you were saying a minute ago, there, there's nowhere to park a truck in a major city. Uh, uh, you know, the parking spaces aren't scaled for that. There's no set aside truck spaces. Um, and you're basically either you're in constant need of either uh, breaking a rule or, or a parking law or needing help from a stranger. I mean, this is the whole day, The whole, you know. Every stop on his route is a uh, is an improvisation. Um, he's gathered certain helpful things over the years. For example, you know, one restaurant he he has the security codes of the building, so he doesn't come in the front. He goes around to the back, and he knows the security code by heart. And he goes in and he goes up to the restaurant that he's delivering to, major time save. Um, and he's got little tricks like that all over the place. Um, and and as you said. He does this job, you know, you don't see him sweat. He just, he's cool as a cucumber. Nothing phases him. Uh, he enjoys it. He loves the challenge of it. Um, and, you know, I have said to friends of mine, uh, there's only one job in this book I don't think I could do, you know, even if I were trained. And and it's that job. Uh, I, I'm not capable. I would be so stressed out all the time. You know, I'm someone who like, I like to be inconspicuous. Um uh, I, I, I am a conformist. I don't break rules. Um, and and I'm not good at waking up early. I mean, there's nothing about it that I think would be easier to me. Um, you know, 
I think I could be an okay chef if that's how, you know, if I'd gone that way and I'm trained. Uh, I'm sure if someone taught me how to butcher or how to, you know, take care of crops in, in a field, I, I think I could do all of those things. Um, I, I don't think I could do this job. I think it would absolutely crush me. So, yes, when you say he's one of the heroes for you, I'm, I'm the same way. I'm actually in touch. He's one of the people I'm still in touch with, um, you know, and just a super affable funny guy on top of everything else. Okay, so one more person, and, and being a gardener, I learned, I actually learned a lot about agriculture from your visits with farmers, especially this guy named John Templin, who runs an outfit called Butternut Sustainable Farms, grows, he actually grows the most sought-after tomatoes, you tell us, in the entire Midwest, and who apologized before your visit because his fields are full of weeds, but that's his method, right? He he believes his weeds promote biodiversity. So so you visited this farm, probably expecting a well-kept-looking farm, and it looks like an industrial area, or I think, as you described it, a mash unit. Yeah, well, I say mash unit because you've got a bunch of these, um, you know, greenhouses or hoop houses, um, uh, you know, there's a thing you learn if you visit enough farms. Nothing gets thrown away. Everything gets you, you know, used or reused, or parts of things get reused. And you know, the greenhouses. I don't know where the plastic sheeting he has that covers them, but it's, you know, it's it's ripped in places. You know, it's a little tattered at the bottom. Uh, as you said, for purposes of biodiversity, if 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 weeds or other random growths um, aren't doing harm. Uh, to what he to the clocks he he just leaves them there um he he believes in letting uh nature kind of take its course out there and and not overly manipulating it for the sake of aesthetics um uh so yeah the mass unit part was was those those greenhouses and then it's, i think i refer to it uh the farm overall is like one man's paying to the randomness of the universe because i mean uh it, it does. I felt bad when I got there because he, um, I guess, had realized, you know, I'd written other books and I had a podcast, you know, Googled me. Um, and he had said he had thought about cleaning the place up, you know, the way I would talk about my apartment. Um, but, you know, this is several acres of land. <laughs> I don't know how one would have done that. And the fact that he even thought about it, I mean, I felt terrible. Um, but it was very interesting. And, and he's, you know, there are some other people we meet in the book. Um, uh, Jim Lester, who has Wincroft Winery, um, uh, you know, he does some similar things, you know, when, when he uh, trims uh, the vines uh, that uh, the grapes are growing on at the vineyard. Uh, he doesn't haul all the, the, the clippings and whatnot away in a wheelbarrow. He just kind of tosses them into the ground between the trellises and then he runs a you know like a mulcher over it and nobody taught him to do that you know he and john both a lot of it was trial and error um and and it really helped me you know you say that you garden and um it you know with food a lot a lot of you know there's no one way to do things and that's very often true in kitchens and it is one of the many unexpected parallels I found between kitchens and farm life. Uh, you know, the proof is in is in the pudding, right? If 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 a peach comes out in, off the off the farm tasting as good or better than it did if you had done it in a conventional way, um, 
you know, if it, if it tastes just as good, uh, no problem. Uh, but if it tastes better, then you might have happened onto just a new way of doing things. Yeah, uh, that, is, that is something about your book. There's all kind. There's there's the book is just all full of all kinds of um, surprises and um, improvisations. And like, like we don't have time. I'm actually going to have to cut us off right now. But there's actually, you talk about a guy who puts a wood-burning oven on the back of a trailer and goes to farmer's markets and makes pizzas out of whatever he finds at the farmer's market. And I just found the entire book very fascinating. Unfortunately, it's time to go. And I just have to say, great book. Thanks a lot. I learned a lot. Today we've been talking with chef writer Andrew Friedman. I want to thank Matthew Dunn for his tech work on the show. The Dish was recently published by Mariner Books. This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on what goes on behind the swinging doors of a restaurant kitchen, one interview at a time. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.